0: Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFPRL's regular podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Mike Eccles, senior correspondent here in Prague, filling in for our regular host, Steve Gutterman. Last week may have been the most consequential week for European security and stability in years, maybe in a generation, maybe since the collapse of the Soviet Union. In Geneva, Brussels, and Vienna, negotiators from Russia met head-on with diplomats from the United States, NATO, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. The subject in all three places was pretty much the same. Russia's demands to essentially rebuild the security infrastructure that has existed in Europe since the 1990s. What does that mean exactly? Well, from Moscow's perspective, it means no more NATO expansion into countries like Ukraine and Georgia. It means... NATO military infrastructure is pulled back to pre-1997. It means Moscow gets guarantees of no medium-range missile systems in Europe, no strike weaponry in Ukraine. Here is Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Alexander Grushko.
1: Diplomacy is about talking, and without talking it will be not possible to achieve results. We are ready to to continue, but it should be meaningful discussions. It should not be a repetition of so-called slogans or principles. We have to to have uh, a shared uh, common goal. Our common goal is uh, sound uh, new security systems in Europe based on the new principles.
0: The United States, not surprisingly, is pouring cold water on that. So too is NATO's leadership. We were basically saying to the Russians, some of the things you put on the table are non-starters for us. We are not going to agree That NATO cannot expand any further. Uh, We are not going to agree to go back to 1997. Uh, We are not going to agree uh, that everything that is in Europe has to get out of Europe. There's a lot we can, however, work together on in the arena of transparency, uh, deconfliction, communications, arms control, uh, and a whole variety of other areas where we could move forward. That was Wendy Sherman, the number two official at the U.S. State Department and the lead U.S. negotiator in Geneva and Brussels. And all the while, there are more than 100,000 Russian troops massing along Ukraine's border, threatening a new invasion. So was there anything positive to come out of last week's talks? Is there any glimpse of a way forward? Are we hurtling toward war? And what comes next for Moscow? sure seems like there's just one man who's holding most of the cards these days that would be Vladimir Putin and he's holding those cards close to his chest. Joining me now to discuss all this is Kadri Lik a senior fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations and a long-time Estonian foreign correspondent. Welcome Kadri. Hello my pleasure. Also on the line is Sam Green. He's a professor of Russian politics and director of the Russia Institute at King's College London. Sam, welcome. Thank you. Let's start with Kadri. Last week's talks, is the glass half full or half empty, as the saying goes?
1: And that question is uh, it's hard to answer because... Um, I think what we saw in uh, in public sphere was reiteration of positions as as laid out previously. Uh the Russian delegation repeated uh their proposals that they had uh, also given in written format and made public and uh the western side um in different forms and shapes and institutions Uh, said what they thought about it, which was that they didn't like them. So seemingly it is deadlock uh, of all Russian demands. Only the ones that concern arms control have some prospect of of being heard and and the United States is willing to discuss. However, I'm not sure that's the end of the story. I, I think that diplomacy might somehow still have some more acts to to play uh so let's see and and you're obviously right that it is vladimir putin's decision as to whether to continue with diplomacy or or do something else and i i don't think that even russian diplomats actually know uh what are the next orders they will receive from the kremlin
0: sam what are your thoughts
2: well, I mean, my thoughts are very neatly summarised by uh, by Kadri. I wouldn't disagree with with any of that. I mean, to me, the, the the major outcome of the last you know week or so of discussions, I wouldn't call them negotiations, right? But discussions. Um, is that you know we're not at war or we're not more at war than we were before right russia and ukraine having been at war now for for going on going on eight years um but um th- th- things at least didn't get worse and and that really is you know what diplomats are are there for um you know if we take the uh, positions of both sides t- at face value or in terms of what's been publicly said um, and you know it's, it's a reasonable question as to whether we, we do want to take them at face value but but if we do take them at face value then you know Moscow's position is one that has been forming and deepening and and hardening you know since you know 1999 um, at the at the very least um, whereas you know the Western position, the NATO position, the U.S. position, however you know whatever format you want to look at it from, you know, is also a, a very long-standing approach to security uh, in uh, in Europe and, and in fact more broadly than that. Um, so to imagine that this would have been somehow uh, you know settled over uh, over th- you know three days of, of, of discussions is, uh, is, is is probably too much. For, for anybody to have hoped for on, on either side. I think we, we do have, you know, professionals and, and, and reasonably, you know, realistic people, um, uh, at least in the, in the foreign ministries, on, on both sides. Um, and, and so I think that you know, the best we could have hoped for is what we got, uh, is, you know, discussions that, that, you know, may continue in some form or another and that seem to have been enough at the moment to prevent um, uh, Moscow from expanding uh, its, its invasion of Ukraine.
0: Of course, uh, as you say, it's Ukraine and the deployment of Russian forces along the borders that has pushed this situation to a outright boiling point. Yet, we didn't seem to hear a whole lot about Ukraine, at least publicly, during last week's talks. You know, they got mentioned a couple times in a couple of uh, venues, but it didn't seem to be central to the conversation. Uh, Sam, would you agree with that assessment?
2: Um, well, I, I think you know it is a rhetorical, rhetorically difficult position that, that Moscow has, has painted itself into, which is that you know, this is fundamentally about Ukraine, um, and yet they don't want um, they don't want the Ukrainians at the table, um, uh, and, and and that's a very difficult position to maintain if, if you're trying to maintain any kind of, of, of public legitimacy. So I think that's, that that's part of it. The U.S. obviously also made a commitment not to talk about Ukraine without Ukraine being at the table. So that's also part, I think, of the. Um, of the calculation there, right? Uh, but the demands, such as they are, right, that, that Moscow has put on the table are not demands for, uh, for Ukraine to fulfill. Um, uh, they are demands for, for Washington to, to, to fulfill uh, if, if Washington feels um, so inclined, right? Uh, it's, it, it's Moscow's interpretation, or this is public interpretation, of how the world works and how security in, uh, in Europe works is that the decisions are made um, in uh, in Washington, uh, and and so you know from, from that perspective, to the extent that you know really it was it was Moscow that convened this particular set of of discussions. Um, uh, that's that's maybe not all that
0: surprising. Kadri, how sustainable mm-hmm. is this tempo of threats and rhetoric and escalation and de-escalation? For Russia, how is it possible that we could see a uh, you know a long-term frozen conflict situation in Ukraine, like pretty much Russia has done in Moldova and Georgia? And that would pretty much accomplish what Russia wants, which is blocking Ukraine from from NATO membership.
1: Well, that is a situation that exists de facto. I mean, the conflict in Donbas. Okay, it's not uh, as frozen as as it could be. Uh, there are people uh, dying regularly, but but even so, I mean that's the situation we have already. So I think Moscow really wants something more. Moscow wants uh, Ukraine to be uh, locked in with Russia for the foreseeable future, at least yeah, to make sure that Ukraine does not slip away and get closer to a West. I think what got President Putin moving, uh it was a combination of things, but it had to do with uh the Minsk negotiations stopping to produce the results that Moscow wants and they essentially gave up on on that. They saw that Ukraine was receiving Western help that uh made it um, more able to resist any 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 Russian offensive uh, and so forth. So actually they wanted to reveal the situation. And yeah to, to the previous question, um, I agree with some that, that Russia wants essentially to discuss the things that are the West to deliver and not not Ukraine's. So add just a bit of criminology here. I think it's also significant that President Putin asked the Russian foreign ministry to handle that foul file and to come forward with proposals, because it's You know, for the foreign ministry, it has always been, whenever these matters are discussed, they say that, you know, first there must come a new European security system and then Ukraine's place in it and then everything else will follow. There is a lot of systemic legalistic view of of, of saying, uh, of seeing things. Whereas, you know, for some other players in Russian system, it might be, sufficient to just have some agreement on on Ukraine explicitly and to create sort of psigeneries uh, uh, around Ukraine. Uh, but, but of course, from Russia's point of view, if there is a full uh, new European system, then that would make everything easier to handle.
0: Speaking of Kremlinology, here's one point that personally I wish would get a harder look. How much Are internal domestic politics driving Kremlin foreign policy? As as we all know, two years from now, Putin's current term as president is supposed to end. He's now constitutionally able to stay on for yet another term, and theoretically, he could be president until 2034. Will he do that? We don't know. But so maybe all this saber rattling is just putin trying to cement his legacy maybe it's for his domestic constituency paving the way to the run-up to the 2024 election maybe this helps fend off potential rivals or a successor a succession struggle kadri what do you think about that
1: um i think that yes and no i mean i i don't by the logic of um, diversionary wars, or the idea that Russia launches wars abroad in order to boost the regime popularity at home, uh, that question it's not settled. There is debate on that even in, in in Russia, and and sometimes you know people who analyze domestic politics in Russia say that of course everything was domestically inspired. Foreign policy analysts would say no, no. Where was foreign policy context? My impression so far has been that through proper, hot foreign wars have f- foreign policy related strategic calculations behind them. That said, I, I think uh, domestic context does play a role. Um, I don't still exclude that President Putin might consider leaving in 2024, or at least he wants to be able to, and he might view Ukraine as yeah something he wants to settle while he's in the office. Not least because maybe for the next generation in Russia, the whole Ukraine thing matters a lot less. And Putin wants them to face uh, fair complete when, when he leaves. Um, or he might want, yeah, to have it somehow settled before elections. Um, political. There is some logic in it, so I don't, I don't accept the sort of primitive interpretation of that proposition. But, but I think you know some logic or some some less direct linkage might well be there.
0: Sam, what do you think about that?
2: <laughs> you know, I try not to think about it, to be perfectly honest, um, because I don't know what Putin is thinking. I don't know what Putin is thinking because I can't know what he's thinking. And because I can't know what he's thinking, I try not to build my sort of models of, of, of how Russian politics works around um, you know, what's going on in, in his head, right? I think that there are certain things we do know from analyzing his behavior and just from looking at how, you know, people in, who have structured power similarly to the way that Putin has, you know, behave and, and the incentives that they face around um, uh, around the world and sort and throughout, of throughout history. And we see that, that that Putin very much conforms to those patterns, right? He's interested in, in the prolongation of, of, of his own power. Um, I think Kadri's right. It could come to a point where he would feel like he could uh, uh, he could step back. We won't know when that's going to happen. But even when he does, he will want to be protected and 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 feel that he's uh, he's secure within that. And if you look at uh, you know recent events in Kazakhstan, for example, that looks like a much more difficult proposition than than maybe it did even just a few weeks ago. Um, so uh, you know I think he has to think in terms of uh, threats to his um, his longevity and, and the longevity of his political project. Uh, those threats are primarily. Uh, domestic. Uh, I think it's, it's true that uh, even though we did see sort of a rally around the flag after after the annexation of Crimea, um, you know, that didn't, uh, I, I don't think there's, there's reason to believe that was the reason that they went in into Crimea. Uh, they certainly didn't know ahead of time that it was going to produce that, that kind of result. And if we look at public opinion now about Ukraine, uh, you know, we don't see a population that is itching for uh, for war, despite you know seven or eight years of, of very belligerent propaganda from uh, from Russian state television and, 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 and the, the state more broadly, um, so uh, you know I think there, there are political risks involved uh, with the war. I think that it's in, in not not um, uh, it's not clear what a war would uh, would, would deliver um, that would be useful for him. On the other hand. Right, um, confrontation with the West is baked into Russian politics. Right, it is a core element of his legitimacy. It's also a core element of how he deals with the opposition. At this point, you know, to to be oppositional in Russia um, is to be uh, treasonous. Right, um, and and he, he he and the state have lined up the opposition very clearly with the idea of a of a foreign threat, particularly a Western threat, uh, and and betrayal of. Of, of russia's national interests and its uh its sovereignty and it, it is nigh on impossible to imagine him uh, ever being able to pivot away from that even um even if he wanted to right so maintaining this kind of confrontation uh maintaining uh a um uh, a, 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 a difficult relationship with the west uh in fact is um, is probably actually in his uh, in his political interests, uh, as is as as Katya was saying, you know, preventing uh, you know Ukraine from from slipping away. I think not because of some sort of imperial nostalgia or because of uh, you know the fear of having a a democracy next door that might set a, a bad example from his perspective for. For Russian citizens, but um, because of the pressure that a uh, particularly actually an EU integrated Ukraine would put on uh, on the Russian economy to, uh, to reform uh, in ways that would be detrimental to again Putin's political longevity. Sorry, a long answer to a short question.
0: It's a long answer for a very complicated question that uh, isn't going to be resolved, certainly not today, not and maybe not in the coming weeks, although uh, they indeed will be critical for the Kremlin, for the White House, for NATO. Thanks to you both for joining us today, Kadri Thank, Thank you. Thank you. That's it for us folks today. This is RFERL's week ahead in Russia. Thank you all for tuning in.